Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Dr. Karen Philbrick, Executive Director of the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University, and your chair for today's program. MTI is a university transportation center that leads three competitively selected multi-university consortia. The first, the Mineta Consortium for Transportation Mobility, is funded by the U.S. Department of Transportation. We also lead the California State University Transportation Consortium, which is funded through the California Road Repair and Accountability Act of 2017. And finally, rounding out our portfolio, we lead the Climate Change and Extreme Events Training and Research Program funded by the Federal Railroad Administration. All of our work focuses on increasing mobility for all by improving the safety, efficiency, convenience, and accessibility of our nation's transportation systems. We do this through surface transportation research, workforce development, technology, transfer, and education. And we're so happy you could be with us today. Today, we present the 14th annual Norman Y. Bonetta National Policy Summit. We honor our founder and his legacy year after year with bringing good programming to key people like yourselves. Today's program, Getting to Zero Death on Our Roadway, the IIJA Up to the Challenge, is presented by the Commonwealth Club of California in partnership with the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University. As you may know, the United States faces an extreme public health crisis on its roads. In 2021 alone, almost 43,000 people died in traffic crashes and millions more suffered very serious injuries. Our Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, calls the situation a preventable crisis, one for which we must take responsibility by recognizing that human lives are not a price to play for modernity. New funding available through the IIJA, also known as the 2021 Infrastructure and Investment and Jobs Act, provides a significant opportunity to reduce crashes through infrastructure redesign. Today, I'm thrilled to tell you I'm joined by a select group of national experts who will discuss the role of this redesign in achieving a national goal of zero traffic fatalities. First, I'm pleased to introduce a very special guest, Robin Hutchison, Administrator for the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. She's joining us for a fireside chat. At the end of that very special discussion, we will hear from Jennifer Homendy, the 15th Chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, who will deliver today's keynote address. That address will be moderated by Ms. Paula Hammond, who is WSP's Multimodal National Market Leader and importantly, she is the chair of the American Road and Transportation Builders Association Board of Directors, the first woman to hold that post in the organization's over 100-year history. And sneak peek, she was a former Secretary of Transportation for the state of Washington, so no one better than Paula to lead that discussion. Following the keynote, we will have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Asha weinstein Agarwal who is the director of MTI's National Transportation Finance Center, and she will present safety-related findings from a brand new MTI National Public Opinion Survey. Finally, we will round out this exciting program with a distinguished panel that will expand on the discussion of these very important issues. I'm now pleased to introduce our very special guest, Administrator Robin Hutchinson of the FMCSA. 
Now, Robin deserves a very long and rich introduction for everything she's accomplished, but time limits prevent me from going into that level of detail. So I invite you to look at the program that we prepared for your perusal for today's program. But in short, she previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Safety Policy for the U.S. Department of Transportation in the Biden-Harris administration. In that role, she led safety policy and coordinated safety efforts across multiple modes of transportation, including, very importantly, COVID response and recovery. She led the development of the first national roadway safety strategy for the United States and helped secure over $13 billion in additional funding for safety programs and initiatives included in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Robin, thank you so much for making the time to join us from Washington, D.C. today. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Philbrick, it really is an honor to join you this morning or this afternoon, uh, wherever our guests are tuning in from today. I, I really am happy to be here. Well, thank you so much. And for I'm wondering if you could tell us, for people who might not be familiar with your organization, can you tell us a bit more about the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and just off the top, I just I want to recognize too that I'm I'm joined a little later today by so many just fantastic colleagues who support our work at the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. And in a, in addition to, to being so glad to join you on this, um, I'm also just honored to to uh, be followed by the Honorable Jennifer Homendy, who's just such a leader. Uh, in roadway safety. Um, I, I think you've really rounded out this session so nicely. And then some longtime colleagues, Beth Osborne, um, Paula Hammond, my colleague, Emily Schweininger, uh, Salika Talbot, who I know uh, set up so much work to, that I got to walk into at FMCSA. So um, just so so glad to, to be joined later by these folks who really understand our work at FMCSA. Um, our mission is to uh, reduce crashes and injuries involving commercial motor vehicles, and safety is literally in our name, and we are a safety mission, safety-based organization. We do that through policy development, through regulation. Uh, we do that in our work with states around the country, and we do that together with our stakeholders in industry and academia, working with our uh, safety advocates, federal, state, local government. Um, safety is our mission. It's not done alone. We we know we can't do it alone. And, and it really is also one of the tenets of the National Roadway Safety Strategy that we do it together. That's right. And I know safety is the top priority, but are there some other priorities and initiatives that you're currently working on through the administration? So this administration and specifically uh, the Department of Transportation under Pete Buttigieg is an extremely safety focused organization. It is our North Star. It is our guiding light on what we do. And it's been such a privilege. It's been so interesting for me to be able to begin in one role at the Department of Transportation to be on the policy development side in this administration for safety and specifically roadway safety. And then after a year of doing that work, be able to transition into the implementation side of that. And what is so interesting about FMCSA and the work that we are doing is that our Venn diagram is so strong on the goals that we've set forth as the Department of Transportation. With safety as our guiding light, we will we are we are driven, literally driven, to bend the curve back down 
on those crashes that are increasing. But if we do that, that Venn diagram has success for us in equity and in climate, and for us at FMCSA, economic strength and transformation. So our, our efforts do everything possible to leverage those multiple bottom lines, those multiple outcomes that we get when we have success and safety. And I love the use of the term driven, that you're driven and no pun intended there, but it's just so perfect. And just a follow-up question. I know we experienced almost 43,000 deaths last year, and that's a significant increase from prior years. And I believe one of the highest rates we've seen in almost 15 years. What do you attribute that increased number to? It's really important to break out big numbers. The mm -hmm. big numbers tell a story of a crisis. If we're going to be successful in bending the curve back down, we have to understand in what conditions those crashes are happening and why. So let me just take a moment to talk about the National Roadway Safety Strategy, because in the policy development there is a basis in data, which teases apart why are crashes happening, what are the reasons the crashes are happening, let's put emphasis there, and then equally as important, where's the disproportionate impact of those crashes, and mm -hmm. let's put our energy there. So just to take this for example, looking through the lens of FMCSA, our job is commercial motor vehicles. We tease out the over 5,700 crashes involved that where a commercial motor vehicle is involved. We tease that out and then we try and understand why, what is happening. For us, very often, it's not a, a, a fault of the commercial motor vehicle driver, which is a, a tr who is a trained CDL holder, sometimes it is. And when it is, we, we really wanna know why. And when we boil that down to the why, we get at the safer people part of the safe system approach. Why is that driver tired? If, if fatigue is a factor, why is that driver tired? Can they not find a place to park? Are they worried about a predatory truck leasing arrangement? These are the root causes of safety that we are really focused on. Why is why was that driver allowed to uh, hop from one state to another state um, when they were prohibited in one state? Is that a system we need to fix? The answer when we looked into it was yes. So teasing apart that 43,000, looking at at specific lenses for us, commercial motor vehicles, understanding why the crashes happen and what we need to do to prevent it and what others might need to, to do to prevent it is really at the core of our mission. That makes such perfect sense. And can you, you talked about the safe systems approach. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a quick briefer on what that is so everybody has the same understanding? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. Um, as, as you mentioned, and thank you so much for, for introducing it, uh, Secretary Buttigieg announced the National Roadway Safety Strategy. It's been over a year now. Um, and, and when he announced that, it, we really broke it down into this, this is four parts, this strategy. The first is a very strong statement that zero is the right number of fatalities on our roadways. And that's kind of a big deal for the DOT to, to say we believe in zero. We believe that zero is the right number. Um, so, you know, big kind of policy swing there. Uh, the second thing it did is it adopted the safe system approach, 
which is um, a systems approach to safety with certain truths. One of those truths being that humans are going to continue to make mistakes because what human doesn't make a mistake. And that we should build systems around inf uh, fallible humans so that a mistake doesn't lead to death. And to do that, we need to have safer roads, safer people. We need to have safer speeds, we need to have safer vehicles, and we need better post-crash care. So that's the system that wraps around fallible humans who will probably make mistakes. Uh, the third thing the National Roadway Safety Strategy did is it made a list of actions that the DOT commits to. And we're making progress on that and a uh, result of uh, some really fantastic work out of our policy shop, which you'll hear about later, I hope, from Emily Schwenninger. Uh, we're tracking our progress. We are holding ourselves accountable to what we committed to. And then last but not least, with a convening just this week, it is a call to action to all of our partners, those that I mentioned at the top, all of our partners, what will you do? What more will you do? Um, and we, are, we have a list of um, partners who have stepped forward just very quickly and more that keep coming online with um, commitments on what they'll do for roadway safety. So a little bit there about the, the national roadway safety strategy and specifically and very importantly, our adoption of the safe system approach. Well, your talk of data, of course, just thrills me because I love that. And having hard numbers is so important to understanding and rectifying situations. And I have to say, though I'm a transportation professional, my middle sister was killed in a car accident when she was 19 years old. So I feel very deeply about this topic. Uh, you don't ever recover from, from that type of experience. And knowing that wraparound services and a more holistic approach to protect our vulnerable road users is being discussed is critically important. But I digress. So I want to follow up on something you just said. You talk about partnerships. You talked about collaboration. And I understand how important that is. But can you give us a flavor for how that partnership looks like with state, territorial, and local governments? And what roles maybe the viewing audience and others like myself can play as a stakeholder in achieving that vision of zero? Um, I can't move on without recognizing your loss. And I'm I'm so sorry to hear your story. And it's unfortunately a story um, that we hear so frequently. And it's that personal tragedy that I know drives so many to make a difference. Um, so thank you for everything you're doing to make a difference. Thank you. Um, oh, I'm gonna pick back up on the thread. I always get a little sidelined when there's uh, Partnerships and collaborations with state, territorial, and local government. Thank you. Uh, wow. Well, I'm going to start to tie into you know the bipartisan infrastructure law and this incredible opportunity we have with great policy and transportation and with the funds that match and go with it. Um, we have to be working with, and I'll just focus for a minute on on uh, state and local government here. And I'm going to give two examples one from sort of my previous life and one from my current life. Um, you know, within the bipartisan infrastructure law is a safe streets and roads for all grant program that is specifically for local government to tackle their toughest roadway safety challenges. Um, I know you're going to hear more about this later, so I'm going to be brief on it. Um, just to say that this has been a success in the first round of grant awards in that $800 million has gone out the door. Um, you know, over half the country is covered in some way by a, a, a grant to improve roadway safety. Um, almost every state in the nation 
um, have, has benefited from this. And it is an example, a good example of the federal government working in partnership with local government to tackle their most uh, challenging issues on roadway safety and to plan ahead. Um, the second example I'll give you is from FMCSA. Um, the bipartisan infrastructure law doubled our formula grant funding for the Motor Carrier Safety Assistance Program, or MIXAP. It's our largest grant program. We work so closely with states on reducing uh, fatalities and injuries related to commercial motor vehicles. We have doubled the money. We just last week held a national convening with states to work together and for us to provide some guidance on our priorities of how we think those funds can be used in uh, state by state uh, again, tailoring to the local government. Not every state has the same exact challenges, um, but uh, working with them to improve data collection, to uh, look at the geography, not just statewide, but exactly where in their state the biggest problems are, um, to guide them towards uh, working with new entrants, which are the new carriers, and we get them early. That is prevention work that we do to do more work in prevention uh, to really emphasize prevention using these grants to avoid um, ever having to uh, do the work on the back end after a crash has happened or after a carrier has already become unsafe. Um, there's more to that and we've issued some guidance uh, to, to states that will help us work in partnership using those resources, about double the more than double the resources mm -hmm. for the outcomes that we wanna work in partnership with, with local government, with state government. So you talked about working with local and state government, and I could see really how important that is given the diversity of geography and everything else we have in, in our country. Can you describe to us how the investment in a rural community may differ from an urban environment and how you're working with the local government to understand what's needed? Absolutely. Um, we, I, so there's, there's a, there's a focus on rural uh, communities right now that everybody, like everyone in DOT is trying to be on this committee. Everyone, like all the leaders are like, oh, it's a routes council meeting. I can't miss that meeting, but clear, you know, clear the deck. Because uh, I, I think we have, we just have so much time investment and attention going towards rural America right now. They cannot be left behind from the benefits. Um, this is the same with our Justice 40 initiatives. They cannot be left behind from the, of the benefits of the bipartisan infrastructure law. So through uh, the Routes Council, which is um, convened, that is the leadership, we identify um, the benefits to rural communities that we know we need to lift up. So just a couple examples. Um, if any of you have worked with Maria Zimmerman, uh, we are so lucky to have her at the USDOT. She is doing so much work um, to make sure that our technical assistance to local community and in particular rural and tribal communities who historically have had trouble getting to the table for some of these grant opportunities, making sure that we have a very specific strategy that brings them to the table, that helps them decipher and understand, which I'll be the first to admit, I came from local government. I know that it can be very hard to decipher the language of you know, a NOFO, exactly what is being asked for and how to prepare for that. We have specific effort, efforts to help uh, rural and tribal communities really get to the table for the benefit. Um, we have some really interesting nuance in Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. Something that uh, we've been learning is 
you know, one of our jobs is to make sure that drivers who are who obtain a commercial driver's license are well trained mm-hmm. by a set of standards so that when they begin driving their driving career, we have confidence that they have been well trained. And by the way, the byproduct is that they're going to pass that CDO uh, sooner than they normally would have. They maybe don't have to do, do it on two or three tries to do that, to pass and that's great for uh, supply chain work as well. So double benefit, safety, economic strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, but rural rural America does the, has less access to this to this opportunity. So it's something that we're really working hard to understand the, the challenges of rural America, and similarly to kind of get them to the table to be able to uh, train, take the test, and um, enter this part of the workforce. Well, offline, if you ever want to partner with one of our tribal colleges, we've worked very closely with Navajo Technical University, which is introducing a CDL training program. So I'll follow up with your staff. I would love to follow up. Yes, we'd be very interested in continuing our engagement through through you as a partner and, and really with all the ideas that come to us. Very good. Now, you just talked a little bit about the challenge of making sure that our tribal governments and some of the more rural environments have the same understanding and start with the same footing. Are there any other provisions within the IIJA that have proved challenging in your effort to improve safety? The way that I see the IIJA or the bipartisan infrastructure law, and it it might be a little bit just who I am and how I approach things is, I mean, it's all challenging and it's all an opportunity. And Mm -hmm. it is, um, you know, the, the, the obstacles that we identify and, 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 and specifically try to get over is all so that we can maximize the opportunity of this once in a generation investment in safety. Um, so I can't, uh, you know, I, I like there's like an inside thing that we find challenging at the DOT and certainly at FMCSA is staffing up for this is hard. You know, the recruitment and staffing so that we know we can do the job uh, is it's an effort in and of itself. We talk about it a lot and we it's in FMCSA. It's the first thing we did is invested in the the human resource capital that could help us scale up. So an underlying challenge for us, and I, mean, I think it's industry-wide, um, is, is staffing up to, to really be able to execute. Um, I would say six months ago, it was still like, this just feels overwhelming, but we're, we're getting some really good results. I think we're attracting some great talent and um, we're looking better and better on uh, the staffing that we need to, to, to do the job. You bring up such a critically important point, and that's workforce development, because that's definitely related to safety. If we don't have the qualified, well-trained people to run the systems, we're in trouble. But even standing up the system you're leading is a very big deal. And so as an international board member for WTS, which I know that organization is near and dear to your heart, and of course, our keynote moderator, Ms. Paula Hammond, is the immediate past chair of WTS International, I have to ask, what did you do to break down barriers and disincentives so that you could staff up appropriately so that you could use this funding, this once in a lifetime investment to really improve safety? If we don't have diversity of opinion and thought, we will not have as robust an approach to executing on our mission of the bipartisan infrastructure law. Beautiful. That for sure includes 
a gender balance in our internal workforce. And it for sure includes broader diversity in who and how we recruit and how we retain. Um, so when I said we've got a, you know, a lot of effort around F in FMCSA, I'll just talk in my own organization now at FMCSA, we have a, a recruitment technical advisory group and their whole job is to go forth and recruit a diverse and qualified um, candidate pool for our positions. They have been around the country focusing on uh, recruiting women into the workforce. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about women in the workforce another way in a second, but women into, into our ranks. Um, we ha we are partnering with historically black, black colleges and universities. We've done numerous job fairs there with tribal colleges. And I would just love to take you up on your offer uh, because we, you know, we're, we're going to do better when we look like the America we serve. Um, so equity is front and center. Diversity um, and creating an inclusive, diverse workforce is is a path to success for executing on, on everything we need to in the bipartisan infrastructure law. But let me just note another area of focus for FMCSA. Um, you know, we're, it, it, your first question was, for folks who don't know about your organization, tell us about your organization. But more and more people who know who we are. Mm -hmm. Because COVID really shined this big bright spotlight on FMCSA uh, because of our role in uh, commercial motor vehicles, uh, regulating for safety, and the, the effect that has on a strengthened supply chain. So when we felt those critical supply chain, uh, that tension, uh, I think folks really started to understand the importance of the driving community what essential workers these drivers are. One thing that came to light is only 7% of drivers are women. Mm -hmm. If we have a brittle supply chain and we have a, a shortage of commercial motor vehicle drivers to strengthen it, and we can recruit and retain, if we can retain, they are the safest drivers on the road. But if we're not able to recruit again that most diverse workforce, and in this case, you know, the the opportunity for women is just as great as the opportunity for men to be in this workforce. So we have stood up, and this is this is embedded. If you read, if you read way deep in the bipartisan instructional language, you will read about the Women of Trucking Advisory Board. Mm -hmm which we have stood up. We've had two meetings. Um, this is uh, something that Secretary Buttigieg kicked off himself. Um, and we have uh, several kind of weighty topics that we're bringing to this group and their job is to, to guide us in supporting um, having more women in the industry and what we can do at the federal government and at FMCSA and at the DOT to support those efforts. So. You know, two perspectives there. One is broadening our own workforce so that we do a better job serving America, but also what do we need to do to to bring more women into the driving profession and how do we remove the barriers for them? Some of them um, are, you know, tough. We're talking about uh, this group is talking about sexual assault, about the feeling of insecurity. Um, and those are real barriers that need uh, real attention, and we're not shying away from them. That you, um, you've said so many critically important things. In fact, I might have gone off camera there for a minute. I swooned at the very beginning of the comments you made because they're just so apropos and so spot on. 
I'm sorry to say that our time has come to a close, but we have so much to learn from you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your expertise. And thank you for joining us today. It's just been really outstanding, Administrator Robin. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And what an honor to join the Mineta Institute just after having the opportunity to honor Norm Mineta at the USDOT headquarters. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And thank you. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye, everyone. And for our listening audience, what she's referencing is on May 9th of this year, the USDOT headquarters in Washington, D.C. was dedicated in honor of Secretaries Coleman and Mineta and is officially known as the Coleman Mineta Department of Transportation now. We're very, very proud of that and his continued legacy. So, so thank you again to Administrator Hutchinson. That was absolutely outstanding. And now we'll turn to our keynote speech. And it's my pleasure to introduce the moderator, Ms. Paula Hammond. I referenced her a couple of times already. As previously indicated, she is the National Transportation Market Leader for WSP USA. She's a former Secretary of Transportation for the state of Washington. She's the current chair of the American Road and Transportation Builders Association, and she's the past chair of WTS International. And if you listen closely to those roles, you'll see that we're talking about a true trailblazer, a woman who is diplomatic, respectable, honorable, and breaking down barriers for all of us who will come after her. And she's just a dear friend and a wonderful human being. So Paula, thank you for joining us today and please take it away with your keynote. Great, thank you, Karen. It was so fun to hear you and Robin talking about um, topics that women have not always been in the forefront of and the leadership at, at USDOT and the administrations is just fantastic. So I'm excited to be here and excited to introduce our keynote speaker, Jennifer Hammondy. She's the 15th chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. Chair Hammondy was sworn in after being unanimously confirmed, and we all know how hard that is, by the U.S. Senate. A tireless advocate for safety, Chair Hammondy has spent over two decades supporting the critical mission of the NTSB, which investigates crashes in the transportation systems around the world. From 2004 to 2018, Chair Hammondy served as the staff director for the Subcommittee on Railroads, Pipelines, and Hazardous Materials under the Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure. On a personal note, uh, Chair Hammondy, it's been such a delight to see the way you've changed the communication and advocacy for safety at NTSB. And you're always such a great speaker. Um, it thrills me to be able to introduce you today and we're looking forward to your comments. Thank you so much, Paula. And uh, that, those are incredibly kind words and just thank you so much for your leadership as well. Um, uh, I really appreciate being here. I'm very excited about the this event and certainly look forward to our discussion. Uh, and I do want to thank the Commonwealth Fund and, the, and of course, the Mineta Transportation Institute for hosting today's event and our discussion, I think, uh, about the infrastructure law is really timely. Every day, new projects funded by the law break ground in communities across the country. At those events and since it passed, public officials talk about the law as a historic investment in America. Uh, we hear a lot about the once-in-a-generation opportunity to make vital improvements like advancing a greener future by reducing carbon emissions. 
And we also hear that the law will help maintain our nation's competitive international advantage by creating U.S. jobs, promoting equity, and modernizing our built environment, everything from broadband access to repairing our roads, bridges, and tunnels. These are all incredible goals, and I support every single one of them. But I am a little bit concerned. I did hear Robin talk about opportunity. I could not agree more. I just hope uh, that uh, everything uh, that the infrastructure law has provided comes to fruition, uh, which is why I am concerned. And I'm concerned because safety has been largely absent from the national conversation. It's become somewhat of an afterthought. And you mentioned I've been very uh, focused and vocal about getting out uh, uh, NTSB's message and talking about road safety and safety across all modes of transportation. It's because I want to make sure that that doesn't get lost in the conversation. I do want to congratulate Secretary Buttigieg for his leadership on the National Roadway Safety Strategy, which I hope we implement fully. And for being the nation's first transportation secretary to call for zero roadway deaths. Robin mentioned that, and I think it, it that does matter. A lot of people who might be listening might think, oh, that's pie in the sky. Why are we calling for zero? I think it would be irresponsible for any secretary of transportation or any NTSB chair uh, to call for, well, let's reduce 43,000 to 20,000. Those are 20,000 deaths that are that would still be occurring. Zero is the right number. So I am really pleased uh, that the secretary and I told him that and announcing the uh, safety strategy. And so I, I am very pleased that DOT has gone in that direction. But I do fear that we risk missing this once in a generation opportunity to stem the outrageous, and it is outrageous, and it is a public health crisis on U.S. roads. Now, you all uh, who are listening might be wondering, how bad could it be? About 43,000 people died on our roads last year. 43,000 people. That's more than 117 people a day. Millions more people are injured annually. Black, brown, and indigenous road users die on our streets at much higher rates than white road, road users. And pedestrians die on our streets twice as often as other comparable nations. We know that 95% of US transportation deaths take place on our roads. It is the deadliest mode of transportation by far and it's devastating, but it's also preventable. All roadway deaths are preventable. That's why the NTSB has long believed the only acceptable number of lives lost, as I mentioned, is zero. Now, what I do want to mention is that our uh, approach to zero isn't just in roadway safety. The NTSB is fighting to eliminate transportation deaths in all modes of transit, all modes. We're fighting for zero, whether a person is traveling by land, by sea, or by air and everywhere in between. It is a big mission. If you're not familiar with the NTSB, we're a very small, 415 people and growing, uh, but we're also a mighty federal agency of dedicated safety professionals. We're the people in blue windbreakers who you see on the news when something goes terribly wrong. 
We investigate aviation accidents and incidents, train derailments and collisions, marine incidents, vehicle crashes, pipeline ruptures, even commercial space mishaps. Our role is to investigate and determine how that tragedy or near miss happened. We then issue evidence-based recommendations. These are safety recommendations to prevent that tragedy from ever happening again. We make recommendations to anyone and everyone who needs to hear from us, state and local governments, companies, manufacturers, labor unions, even other federal agencies. We then advocate for our safety recommendations until they're enacted. Sometimes it takes years, other times it takes decades. We persist as long as it takes and we never forget. We just closed a recommendation a few years ago that we worked on for five decades. So we never give up. One misconception I should address, the NTSB is not part of the US DOT. In fact, we're totally independent and for good reason. The NTSB exists to hold everyone accountable when it comes to safety. That includes oversight of DOT and its modal agencies, which are frequent recipients of our safety recommendations because they have the authority to implement uh, regulations. That includes the Federal Aviation Administration or the FMCSA, who you, whose administrator you just heard from, Robin Hutchison. And I do want to take a moment on that note just to thank Robin for just her tremendous safety leadership, not just at FMCSA, including on speed limiters, which I will get to, uh, but at DOT, uh, she also uh, was in the secretary's office prior to being at FMCSA. And she really is an incredible partner in safety. And I'm really honored to be with her to, here with her today as well. So thank you, Robin. Um, so, for everyone listening, think of the NTSB as the nation's investigator and transportation safety auditor. We all know that a reputable audit must come from an independent third party because it's hard, if not impossible, to demand accountability from the inside. And accountability matters, especially the people who've lost a loved one in a transportation tragedy. I often meet with the, these bereaved families, sometimes within hours or days of their loss. It is far and away the most difficult part of my role as NTSB chair. In these heartbreaking moments, I can only promise one thing, which is that the NTSB will, that I will vigorously work to prevent similar suffering, suffering for other families. That's why I'm relentless in calling for transportation safety improvements. And I am pretty relentless. Uh, we talked a little bit, Paula mentioned advocacy. I'm very vocal on safety, especially on our roads where the need is so great. So the title of this event asks, is the infrastructure law up to the challenge of helping us get to zero deaths on our roadways? Here's my answer. It's only part of the solution and DOT can't do it alone. To get to zero, to zero, we need a total transformation in how we address the road safety crisis or this public health crisis on our roads. 
That transformation is called the safe system approach, which the NTSB supports as a proven strategy to save lives. It encompasses everything that can save a life. Yes, the behaviors of people on the road, whether they're walking, driving, biking, or rolling, but also the vehicles on our roads, the speed at which those vehicles are allowed to travel, the physical road and infrastructure, including investment in transit. I like to call the safe roads component of the safe system approach safe infrastructure, because we do have to include transit, including rail. Uh, and even our readiness to respond when there is a crash. So the safe system approach is like the Swiss cheese model. It may be easy to see through the holes in one slice of cheese, but put a lot of slices together and there are no gaps. That's what we're talking about, building in redundancy in road safety to save lives. This is something we do very well in other modes of transportation, but not real well when it comes to road safety. And yet the infrastructure law largely addresses just one of those slices of cheese, which is our roads and infrastructure. Yes, transit, but I'll get to that. Now, don't get me wrong. That is a huge part of the solution. It is. We have to redesign for safety and we need that investment but it is just part of the answer. To be fair, the infrastructure law does require the DOT to enact many programs and policies that align with the safe system approach, but we're still struggling. Two recent examples come from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. The law requires NHTSA to strengthen the five-star safety ratings program, which provides essential safety information to consumers and helps them make informed purchase decisions when it comes to new vehicles. Recall that safe vehicles are part of a safe system approach. Last week, the agency published a proposal to update the ratings program by including new pedestrian crash worthiness tests. NHTSA wants to measure how well vehicles protect people outside the vehicle when there's a crash. The NTSB has long supported such measures to save the lives of pedestrians, bicyclists, and motorcyclists, which is great. Yet the devil's in the details. So NHTSA is proposing that manufacturers voluntarily submit vehicle models for testing, verification, and scoring. And then they'll take that information and testing that occurs and they'll post it, post that data on their website but studies show that nearly two thirds of the public is unaware of their website. Now, when the proposal came out, I was actually in a dealership in the waiting room and I asked other people who were also there, do you know who NHTSA is? I also told them who they were and what information they could get about safety recalls on their website, which is incredible information, but most don't. Instead, what we want NHTSA to do is develop performance test criteria for vehicle designs that reduce injuries to pedestrians, test pedestrian safety systems as part of the five-star ratings program, and ensure the results are included on the window decal at the dealership, which can be easily seen by consumers purchasing new vehicles, and not just pedestrians, but also bicyclists. Here's a second example from earlier this week. 
NHTSA announced it was taking steps to address another mandate from the infrastructure law, which is fantastic, which is to require light vehicles to have automatic emergency braking and pedestrian AEB automatic emergency braking systems. Again, that's something the NTSB has supported for decades. Actually, yeah, since 2001. But the proposal leaves out bicyclists and motorcyclists who are also dying at alarming rates. It's worth noting that Europe currently requires new vehicles to detect and avoid pedestrians and bicyclists. They're also testing AEB for motorcyclists. In other words, we're already behind which is why I'm concerned about the deadlines in that proposal. They're much too long uh, and could extend out to 2029 for certain manufacturers since the roadway safety strategy says that this rulemaking will be completed in 2024. So while the NHTSA's proposal doesn't address AEB for commercial motor vehicles, the National Roadway Safety Strategy does so I am hopeful more action is forthcoming on commercial motor vehicles. I'm sure Robin will make sure of that. Uh, and of course, for bicyclists and motorcyclists. The infrastructure law also requires the US DOT to act on impaired driving technology, something the NTSB has supported for well over a decade. The deadline set in law is three years. We're already halfway there. Meanwhile, more than 13,000 people are dying from alcohol-impaired alcohol driving every year. We cannot afford to wait, and we don't have to. The technology is available today that could eliminate impaired driving. The same goes for speeding, which contributes to 30% of all traffic deaths. Even though safe speeds is part of the safe system approach, the infrastructure law doesn't do much to address it. But we have a lot to say at the NTSB. We wanna see speed limiting technology in all vehicles. This isn't just on DOT, this is on vehicle manufacturers. We should be demanding that. that that's our recommendation. Uh, and we need to move away from uh, this one size fits all approach uh, where states get to decide speed limits. Cities and local governments should be empowered to set their own speed limits because they know their community best. And we should modify federal guidance on how speeds are set in the first place. I'm talking about this 85th percentile approach, which is flawed and outdated because, and it's based on the speed of vehicles, not safety, and therefore leads to ever-increasing speed limits across the U.S. And then there's this what seems to be a contradiction in the infrastructure law. And this is something I've raised uh, really since I spoke at the Transportation Research Board in January, and I have been raising the issue since. You know, on one hand, the infrastructure law acknowledges that our roads, bridges, and tunnels are aging and in dire need of repair. On the other hand, the law incentivizes enormously heavy vehicles to travel on our aging infrastructure. And it's, it is gas-powered vehicles and electric vehicles. Now, I'm going to raise the issue of electric vehicles because they tend to weigh more than their non-electric versions because of their batteries. That's true for the Mustang Mach-E, 
the Volvo XC40 EV, the Toyota RAV4 EV, they're all significantly heavier by about a third. Vehicle mass matters to the survivability of people involved in crashes. Safety experts have long cited this data, and everybody watching might might recall this data, and, and may have uh, quoted it just like I have in the past. And it's from the AAA Foundation. When struck at an impact speed of 23 miles per hour, a pedestrian has a 90% chance of surviving. But at 58 miles per hour, that pedestrian has a 90% chance of dying. Well, that data is based on a study where the mean vehicle curb weight was 33,150 pounds, so about 3,100 pounds. That's about a third of what we're now seeing on our roads. So those numbers and the risk to pedestrians and cyclists and all all those outside the vehicles and those that are driving lighter vehicles are so much greater. And, you know, I often point to the GMC Hummer EV, which has a gross vehicle rating of about 10,000 pounds. The battery pack alone weighs about as much as a gas-powered Honda Civic. That has a significant impact on safety for all road users. Now, uh, I want to take a a moment to be clear. We do have a climate crisis that needs to be addressed. The U.S. transportation sector accounts for the largest portion of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, and I firmly believe it is a human right to breathe clean air. I also firmly believe we must achieve multiple goals simultaneously, that we must do it without creating unintended consequences, which in this case would be more deaths on our roads. So that leads me to the final reason I believe the infrastructure law alone isn't going to get us to zero. And that is because it perpetuates our nation's bias for cars. As the Brookings Institution puts it, the infrastructure law seeks to transform driving, not replace it. More people in more cars, regardless of fuel source or street design, will not get us to zero. We must do everything possible to get people on public transit, to give them alternative paths uh, to destinations. It's greener, more affordable, more equitable, and it's safer by orders of magnitude. I'm encouraged that the law allocates billions of dollars for public transit. This is the kind of win-win solutions we need more of. And yet it's still only a a fraction of the funding to electrify vehicles and modernize our roads. Before we open it up to discussion, I'll leave you with this. We must recognize this moment for what it is, a once in a generation safety opportunity. And it's one we absolutely cannot let slip away. We cannot let the safe system approach and vision zero become taglines. We need to measure every single dollar of infrastructure funding distributed by DOT and the states by how well it prevents injury or death on our roads. That is the absolute minimum. We cannot pursue some goals at the expense of safety, no matter how laudable, and we certainly cannot ignore unintended consequences, no matter how well-intentioned our efforts may be. And we must hold everyone 
everyone accountable for safety. DOT can't do it alone. No one can. They just had a call to action to to encourage others to take action. That's another part of the safe system approach, the recognition that everyone shares responsibility for road safety, all stakeholders, governments at all levels, including the NTSB, vehicle and technology manufacturers, nonprofit and advocacy groups, researchers. We have academia here. It's not just your research, it's also your teaching the next generation of students who will be chairs of the NTSB, who will be the Secretary of Transportation, who will be the Robin Hutchison of the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, and they have to continue to carry our safety message forward. Unless we all do our part, we'll never get to zero. Unless we all do our part, NTSB chairs will be meeting with bereaved families long, long after I'm gone. I won't accept that future and neither will the NTSB. So thank you very much. That's fantastic. I mentioned your advocacy and it's shining through your passion for this topic. So thank you very much for your leadership. Um, You uh, mentioned the partnerships that are required in this and I'm heartened that my former colleagues in the state DOTs uh, through AASHTO are having a safety summit this fall. And so I think the attention has been given, uh, or at least is recognizing the need for greater collaboration. You didn't talk a lot about the education enforcement aspect of what the IIJA may, may not be able to do, but what are your thoughts on the fact that we have seen time and again on our highways and freeways since the pandemic, an attitude shift in drivers that is much more brazen and much more uh, speed oriented. And I think just the general attitude of the country uh, has promoted that. What are your thoughts? How do we get to people to um, encourage or warm them to the idea that speed limiters and impaired driving technology are really necessary? What's it going to take? Yeah, um, uh, if I can unpack uh, unpack a little bit of that. Um, You know, education and enforcement has really been the main drivers of safety over the last several decades. And so when we emphasize safe system approach, what we're really saying is we're not saying get rid of education and enforcement. It still has a major role. Uh, What we're saying is we need as much of a role for redesigning our roads and investing in transit. We need to make sure we have safe infrastructure. We need to make sure that we're looking at how we set speeds in this country. We're looking at safe vehicles, how to make those vehicles safer, not for not just for those inside that vehicle, but also for those outside the vehicle. And we're looking at ways where we can support post-crash care better, how we can support emergency responders, whether it's the police that are first on the scene, the firefighters that are on the scene, EMTs, uh, that have to have the resources to save a life, whether that's training gear and and um, other means. But, you know, there are ways of uh, addressing uh, safety and some of the increasing numbers we're seeing, whether it's speeding or impaired driving, that aren't just 
enforcement and education, it's utilizing technology that's out there and showing what that technology could do. I mean, I I look at, I'm a mom, right? I have a 15-year-old daughter and I'm looking at, oh boy, she's going to start driving not anytime soon. I don't care what the age is in Virginia, but she's going to start driving someday. And I start thinking about technology and the vehicles. And this is just an example. Certainly teens need education. Uh, Certainly we don't want to eliminate enforcement with impaired driving uh, in any way. But when I start thinking about how we've always thought about giving our teens resources or or vehicles. We've always looked to, we'll give them the beater car, right? We'll give them the old car. But let's think about all the new technologies and newer cars that could save a life, that could prevent impaired driving, that could uh, prevent distracted driving with driver monitoring technologies, or that could prevent fatigue also with driver monitoring, or that could prevent speeding. Uh, usually when I bring these up, I hear, well, now you're just trying to regulate our lives. And my response is, it is not your right to drive drunk, to drive high, to to drive 60 miles per hour over the speed limit. That's not your right. We're not, we shouldn't be gearing what we do towards safety to improve safety based on your ability to break the law. Uh, So, you know, I think there are lots of ways that we could talk about the role of these technologies to help improve safety. Certainly, it's just one one component of the safe system approach, but it's one that I think uh, that a lot of people would uh, adopt if they knew that that exists or call for if they knew it existed. And it really proves to the point that it takes leadership to make those kinds of comments like you just did. We need Congress, we need all kinds of folks to step up and and truly believe that safety first means something, especially when we hear about the personal stories of lives lost on our roadways. Do you have any final thoughts as our last question about uh, kind of the yin and the yang of the tremendous opportunity we have with IIJA for better investment for our transportation systems. And yet it's our vulnerable road users, our our roadway workers, not just pedestrians in the city, who are so open to vulnerabilities. And any thoughts on work zone safety and techniques or technology that you're supporting or advocating for? Yeah, uh, work zone safety, uh, that's a big issue for the NTSB. We've investigated and we are actually currently investigating a terrible tragedy in Maryland that killed yeah. a number of of workers. And in that one, you had, you know, speeding vehicles. Yeah. And so, you know, I, we have a number of recommendations, whether it is how you uh, set up um, lanes you know, whether it's on highways, on roadways, to make sure that workers are protected when they're working in work zones. We have recommendations on automated speed enforcement in work mm-hmm. zones and in school zones, which I think is very important. And there is there is a wrong way to implement automated speed enforcement, but there's also a right way. And I would direct people to a checklist 
that the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety and the Governor's Highway Safety Association and others have promoted a checklist to get local buy-in and to really uh, not use those programs as revenue uh, drivers, but to really uh, cut down on speeding in work zones and school zones, uh, uh, not just to catch speeders, but really reduce speeding in those areas. And then we have uh, a number of other recommendations uh, to address the safety of of those operators when it comes to federal, uh, I'm sorry, when it comes to commercial motor vehicles operating near work zones as well. So it isn't just vulnerable road users when we think about pedestrians and bicyclists. Um, it is the work zone operators as well. I was thinking about the Maryland example where six people died. And I think through uh, ARTVA, we're advocating um, positive separation and serious consideration of how big the work zone is for that protection you talked about. Yeah. Um, I, I think that... Um, it's a great place to close because with this panel that we have coming uh, next uh, and the conversation uh, throughout the day, we're learning a lot. And I think we have the right people here at the table. Just think about if we all leaned into this around safety first and toward zero deaths, which many states have been working on and unfortunately have taken the wrong turn lately. Um, I think we can solve this, and it takes leadership at all levels. It takes cooperation, partnerships, relationships, and um, I want to commit that I'm all in, and however we can help you as an industry, let's let's work together to do so. So thank you again for being here, and thank you again for your advocacy and leadership. Thank you so it's much, It's my Paula. pleasure. Thank you. It's my pleasure now to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Asha Agrawal, Director of MTI's National Transportation Finance Center. Dr. Agrawal is also MTI's Education Director and Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at San Jose State University. She's researched transportation revenue policy for over 20 years, focusing on holistic evaluation of different tax and fee options. Today, she'll be sharing the result of MTI's most recent national survey, Probing Public Opinion, related to transportation finance policy. This year's survey included additional questions about safety, and they are particularly relevant to our discussion today. Yes, thank you so much, Paula, for that introduction. Yeah. It is my great pleasure to have a chance to, to share with our audience today some brand new survey results. We've been doing an annual survey of the U.S public. And today I have some special safety elements to share. So we, I, I want to, by the way, acknowledge my co-author, Hillary Nixon and MTI for generously funding us for 14 years now. So just quick background. This is one of, uh, is a survey of U.S. adults, um, representative of the full population. We have done this survey every year since 2010. And we used started with phone surveys and then have recently switched over to using online um, ways of, of reaching our respondents. They have been nice large surveys, a minimum of 1,200 people. And this year, actually, we had um, over 2,500 respondents to our survey. I'll key focus going back to 2010, that 9% of all Americans had been moderately or severely injured in a crash in the preceding year. 
and that 22% of people had either a family member or a close friend who had been involved in a motor vehicle crash. Clearly, this is a problem that touches us widely. And again, this was all just in a single year. Um, perhaps not surprisingly, given these experiences, safer roads are a priority and people are sort of conscious um, and, and say this in a deliberate way. Um, and the evidence I can share with you here is that we asked people to rate a variety of different goals for improving the transportation system and safety was the most important goal we tested and 97% of people thought it was somewhat or not or uh, very important um, with 70% saying it is very important. We also asked people if, you know, here are a bunch of different things that uh, the federal government could spend its transportation money on out of this list, um, long list, what are your top three priorities? And we will see that several safety improvements came up. Um, building and improving sidewalks and red light cameras were, you know, a top three priority for 20-25% um, of the public. We also learned that the public is willing to pay more for better safety. Um, we asked them if they would support raising the federal gas tax by 10 cents per gallon for a variety of different purposes. And um, one of the most popular was people said they would support raising the federal gas tax by 10 cents per gallon to reduce accidents and improve safety. Um, and by the way, this support for actually paying more in federal gas tax for safety benefits is something that we have seen consistently um, all the way back to when we first asked in 2011. So to conclude, I think the survey quite strongly underscores that Americans want our transportation agencies to prioritize improving road safety, even to the extent of being willing to pay more in taxes. And, and that last bit, I think, is, is particularly um, critical evidence of, of just how much people care about that. And so I'm going to wrap up, but always happy later on to chat with people who may have comments or suggestions. And I just wanted to mention that MTI does have all 14 years of our survey series up on the website for anybody who may be interested. And so with that, I'm gonna wrap up here and I would like to next introduce Salika Talbot, who is going to be moderating our panel of experts. Uh, Salika has a long career in safety, um, working in, in public sector as well, um, as currently she has her own consulting firm and autonomous vehicle policy is one of her key areas. So Salika, let me turn it over to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that introduction. Um, good morning and greetings from uh, what is warm and sunny Cabo San Lucas. Um, I want to thank uh, Administrator Hutchinson and NTSB Chair Hamandi, as well as my good friend Karen Philbrick for their uh, earlier remarks. I am frankly so committed uh, to the goal of reducing crashes and saving lives that being in Cabo San Lucas was not a deterrent to leading um, this really important discussion this morning. This panel will focus on getting to zero deaths on our roadways and is the IIJA up to the challenge? 
as we all know, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is um, bipartisan bill under the current administration authorizing over $1 trillion in funds to address infrastructure, including roads and bridges, um, rail, airports, ports, um, with a focus on climate change mitigation, resilience, equity, and uh, I think we all can agree, importantly, safety for all. It is my deep pleasure to introduce to you, though, our four distinguished panelists today. I'm going to give you a little bit of information about each one of them, but encourage you to look at the programming, which might have uh, greater detail about their distinguished service and background. Uh, I'm going to introduce you in the order in which I will be asking some questions today. I'll start with um, Emily. Emily Schwesinger serves as Senior Policy Advisor uh, for the Office of the Undersecretary at the United States Department of Transportation. Um, she's promoted safety through the launch of both the National Roadway Safety Strategy and the Safe Streets and Roads for All Discretionary Grant Program. This allocates $5 billion a year uh, over the five years uh, to communities to create and implement comprehensive safety action plans on American roadways. Uh, director Tony Tavares serves as the director of the Department of Transportation for California, what we know as Caltrans, and actively serves on the board of MTI. The director's vision for California addresses critical climate issues and advances a safe, equitable, and sustainable multimodal transportation system building upon strong partnerships, uh, robust stakeholder engagement, and he fosters a people-first culture. This is built on safety, equity, climate action, and economic prosperity, furthering a California that meets the needs for all. Mayor Ravi Bala is a 22-year resident of Hoboken. Uh, he served uh, for eight years on the Hoboken City Council before being elected mayor in November of 2017. And earlier this year, under the mayor's direction, the city achieved a major Vision Zero milestone by reducing the citywide speed limit to 20 miles per hour. Under the mayor's leadership, Hoboken has become a national model, <clears throat> excuse me, for creating safer streets for all residents and modes of transportation. Uh, Ms. Beth Osborne is the Vice President of Transportation and Thriving Communities at Smart Growth America. This is a national nonprofit focusing on the role that the built environment plays in making communities healthy, prosperous, and importantly, resilient. Beth previously worked at the United States Department of Transportation as the Acting Assistant Secretary for Transportation Policy. There, she managed the Tiger Discretionary Grant Program and the Secretary's Livability Initiative. The conversation this morning will focus on safety systems revolving around USDOT principles of safe users, safe roadways, safe vehicles, safe speeds, and safe post-crash analysis. I wanna start the discussion by posing questions to each of our panelists in turn and start immediately with Emily. Um, from your perspective um, at the USDOT, what opportunities do you see with the IIJA um, 
in terms of what have they introduced to support safe systems? Thank you so much, Salika, and thank you all for the opportunity to join you today and discuss this really important work. Uh, the the IIJA, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, uh, really has provided a, a tremendous opportunity, as we've heard uh, from our, our previous speakers. And I think that it's it's important for us to sort of clarify all the ways that we can be working together uh, to make the most out of this opportunity, this once in a lifetime, uh, once in a generation investment. Um, you know, I think what what we heard uh, earlier really described some of the issue around uh, the status quo not meeting the needs of the day. We've got a tremendous problem, safety problem on our roadways. And there's an issue around the complacency uh, and acceptance of this being normalized. And uh, you know, there's a there's an opportunity at this moment to really draw attention to how unacceptable this crisis is. Many folks have been deep in this work for a lot of time and understand the nature of the problem. But this is really, really when we have a chance to bring more people into the conversation and be able to bring these uh, resources together and focus them in a way that's going to make impact and, and change the way we use our roadways and think about safety on our roadways. Uh, we've heard about the National Railway Safety Strategy. I think that this is a critical uh, thing to emphasize that when the bipartisan infrastructure law and all this tremendous funding, including uh, you know, new rule rulemakings that will be coming through and, and other aspects to the law that are going to be really critical for, for achieving our safety goals. The National Railway Safety Strategy really guides the department and allows us to coordinate uh, in, a, in a way that hasn't necessarily happened as clearly in the past across the modes of transportation. So federal highways coordinating with transit, coordinating, uh, you know, with FMCSA, we heard from our administrator Hutchinson earlier. Uh, and so this is a really critical way that we're looking at each program within the, the bipartisan infrastructure law in order to, to ensure that we're going to have that holistic uh, approach that is the safe system approach to ensure that each project, each program is really maximizing on its potential to provide safety benefits uh, for all users. And we did hear about some of the critical issues around vulnerable road users, around disadvantaged communities, black and brown communities, indigenous communities that are that are feeling the brunt and, and carrying uh, an undue burden uh, of this crisis. And so there are you know, aspects of the program uh, that are in the, in the bill that allow us uh, to, to put resources towards making sure that we can support those communities, that this does not pass, this opportunity does not pass to, to reach all of those communities. And in particular, uh, you know, the Safe Streets and Roads for All program, which uh, really is where we can focus a lot of energy on how we can rethink the way we're using our roadways make it more accessible, safer, uh, enjoyable for people to walk, bike, roll to their destinations. Uh, you know, I have a, a public health background, and so I'm very engaged in the idea of this being sort of a, a core way through infrastructure 
that we can be providing all kinds of benefits. Uh, we, you know, Administrator Hutchinson discussed the potential for multiple benefits. Safety is core, it is the first step. And then we have this opportunity for environmental benefits, for economic benefits, and for physical activity and health benefits, all of it uh, being part of this critical, uh, critical story around safety and how we're gonna achieve safety on our roadways. No, thank you for that that answer. And I think the the holistic approach is what's going to serve us best. Um, and and to that end, I think I'm going to turn to Director Tavares um, and ask the next question to you. IIJA is providing state DOTs with a tremendous amount of funding and um, and probably greater flexibility for the first time. So, how can state DOTs change um, their current vehicle-focused approach when we talk about safety and move towards a vision zero approach? Yeah, thank you, Salika. Um, first, just want to thank MTI and the Commonwealth Club and, and my esteemed colleagues here for being on this panel. Really appreciate this opportunity to, to talk about this topic. I'll say uh, it was, it's been mentioned before, but the bipartisan infrastructure law is a once-in-a-generation investment in our infrastructure, not only the transportation system, but energy, water, and broadband. And um, since 2021, California has been able to uh, invest $15 billion of this federal transportation funding to upgrade not only our roads, but our bridges, our rail systems, public transit, our airports, and electric vehicle charging networks, ports, and waterways. Each one of those projects enhancing safety for the user. And safety is our top priority at Caltrans. We're finding ways to leverage this historic investment toward achieving our goal of zero deaths and serious injuries on California roadways by 2050. I will say <clears throat> we have, we Caltrans and the California State Transportation Agency have been leading a statewide uh, bipartisan infrastructure law transportation implementation working group comprised of our state officials, local transportation agencies, Federal Highway Administration, and other transportation stakeholders. And the goal there is really establishing sub-working groups to address specific policy areas, including safety, active transportation, transit, rail, goods movement, tribal transportation, and social equity. The safety sub-working group, <clears throat> we've met several times uh, where Caltrans has uh, discuss the, the IGES impact on the Highway Safety Improvement Program. And that's a program that provides funding for infrastructure projects within the state uh, and to our local agencies. Our local agencies have been extremely successful in competing for uh, safe streets and roads for all discretionary grants from IGES. And more than 40 of our California communities have already received over $25 million to plan and carry out projects that really help reduce the number of deaths and serious injuries on our streets and roads. Um, <clears throat> California has also adopted the goal of eliminating, as I mentioned, fatal and serious injuries by 2050. Um, we've implemented the safe system approach, and that's been mentioned earlier by Administrator Hutchison and Chair Harmony, um, and leading the statewide discussions on safety provisions under IJA has allowed Caltrans to really reaffirm our partners and stakeholders' commitment to our collective and ambitious safety goal of zero fatalities and serious injuries. We're 
applying this across all modes of transportation in California. So statewide-led effort working very, very closely and a robust collaboration with our regional and local partners to ensure that we're looking at people who walk, bike, roll, who take transit, commuter rail, as well as our goods movement industry and people who drive to eliminate those fatalities and serious injuries by 2050. Thank you for that. Um, So we've had a little discussion about what a state is doing. I'm going to turn to uh, Mayor Bala. I have the privilege of having lived in New Jersey um, for over 20 years. So I'm well aware of of a lot of the the obstacles and challenges that occur in that state. It is an incredibly densely populated um, state. And from your perspective, as um, a big city mayor in New Jersey, what do you see as both the strengths as well as limitations of IAJA when it comes to supporting cities and their safety work? Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me uh, on this panel. Uh, I'm happy to report that it is also uh, sunny and warm here in uh, New Jersey. Uh, is uh, more the uh, exception than, than the rule, but um, and it's great to know that you, you've got some experience with uh, New Jersey. We are very densely populated. Uh, Hoboken itself is the fourth most densely populated city, and not, not in the state, but in the country. Uh, we're a city of 60,000 residents um, packed into one square mile. So that in, of its, in and of itself poses its own unique challenges with respect to achieving our vision zero safety goals. Notwithstanding those challenges, we have been successful uh, since implementation of uh, Vision Zero in Hoboken uh, of actually achieving uh, zero deaths uh, since we've implemented the program five years ago. We're now in our sixth sixth year of uh, no no deaths. Um, Our program in and of itself is a bit more ambitious. We are aiming to achieve zero deaths or injuries uh, by 2030 and working towards that goal actively. Uh, the the strengths of the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, I think are self-evident. Um, I want to focus a little bit more on some of the limitations and constraints. Um, I, I sincerely do believe that um, there, there needs to be more investment into communities. Uh, there are a lot of uh, cities uh, around the country that uh, desperately need this funding and need this support uh, in order to achieve their goals. Um, we found, at least in the first round of funding, uh, that uh, we were not eligible uh, for funding, uh, despite what we felt was a strong application. And I think that just goes to, to show that um, there's a there's a strong need um, and there's a limitation uh, with respect to to funding. Uh, number one, and then number two, um, th- a lot of times the the actual process, uh, whether it's um, uh, permitting the the um, uh, the procurement process, uh, can be somewhat cumbersome, uh, costly, and expensive as well. Um, so if that in any way can be streamlined, it would be a lot a lot easier for um you know whether it's a medium or modest sized city to to navigate uh in an, in an effective manner thank you i appreciate that having had so we've done a little city um i'm going to turn to miss osborne and and talk to you a little bit about the advocacy space 
in that space and in your perspective, um, can you share with us where you might see a, an appropriate focus of, um, of IIJA in addressing safety improvements for vulnerable road users, but also the converse of that? Um, do you see any spaces where IIJA might have failed to provide um, the right incentives and resources? And we just heard from the mayor uh, you know, about not even um, qualifying initially um, when they made their first application. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you and ask you to, to comment on that. Sure. And again, I really appreciate being included here on the panel today and, and your moderation. Um, yeah, you know, a, a lot of the positives have been covered, particularly the Safe Streets and Roads for All program. But I, I think the problems and the limitations are uh, uh, well explained through one provision in the IIJA that on the surface sounds really exciting. Uh, states are now required to spend at least 15% of their highway safety improvement funds on biking and walking safety when bicyclists and pedestrian fatalities are 15% or more of traffic fatalities. Now, Right off the bat, if it's 14%, they're not required to spend a dime. And if for some reason the fatalities scoot up to 50%, they're only required to spend 15%, uh, which shows the where bike head fatalities fit. Um, in my home state of Louisiana, 15% of highway safety improvement program funds would be 8 million of their 56 million. And that 56 million uh, dollar uh, safety program is 6% of the 948 million that the feds send to Louisiana for their highway program. In California, 15% of their highway safety program is 40 million of uh, over 250 million. And again, that's, you know, that's a program that's 6% of the nearly $5 billion in federal highway funds. And uh, federal funds are a minority of Caltrans's overall funding. So, the point is, it's it's not a shift in the program. You know, since the beginning of my career, which goes back to the mid '90s, uh, the way we handle problems in transportation is we create something on the side to address it, rather than reorganizing the program to achieve different results. So right now, we now have a minority of the minority of the minority of funding that can go to vulnerable, that's guaranteed to vulnerable users once states perform poorly enough. But all the rest of their money can go to create more problems that need to be fixed by these little bitty programs in the future. And that is not, that, that's why we rank so poorly against our international peers. So you know, we've seen over the past several years when overall fatalities are going down, bike ped fatalities were going up. Uh, in 2020, when driving dropped by a huge amount, uh, overall fatalities went up and pedestrian fatalities went up with it. Last year, when we saw the data for 2021 and saw that fatalities leveled off, I heard relief. In other words, people were fine. They were comforted by the fact that it didn't get worse, but they were fine. They were seemingly reassured by the fact that it stayed at a record high. And in that year, pedestrian fatalities took another gigantic leap up. 
So we really need to reorient. And, and there are some things that I will finish up by saying could be done while waiting for Congress to come back and hopefully show some serious attention to a program that delivers safety results. And that is first states don't have to wait for the feds to step up and lead because we've been waiting for a long time and we haven't seen it. And uh, USDOT doesn't have to wait for Congress. Now they've got a very impressive safety plan, but they need to do a lot more implementing and uh, move away from the fixing to implement, as we would say where I come from. Um, I would love to see the, the manual for un uniform traffic control devices uh, really become much more friendly to pedestrians and vulnerable users, allowing things like eye-catching colorful pedestrian crossings right now dismissed as unsafe because it is distracting, which is the point. It is supposed to get the driver's attention, not be easily missed. But in our world, that's not the goal. Um, I'd like to see those safe speed limits that Jennifer Homedy talked about. I'd like to see traffic modeling that is tested and overseen to see if it's accurate and actually includes bicyclists and pedestrians that are our standard. There's a bunch of things that we can do in the run-up to the next reauthorization. Um, and it's going to fall greatly to those of us in the advocacy community to hold the states who have the money and the authority to fix this while waiting for the feds to hopefully get some more authority in the future. Loved every minute of that. You are singing my tune. Um, I am a strong advocate for future transportation, autonomous vehicles, electrification, robot delivery drones. But we have, um, pardon my language, really screwed up transportation to date and are beginning to bake in some of those past mistakes by just sort of lumping on top of it um, fixes um, rather than maybe just say, okay, we're going to throw up the whole puzzle and start over and put the pieces correctly where they should have been in the first place. Um, I'm going to turn to um, back to Ms. Schwedinger. Schwedinger, I'm sorry, I, the S's are getting me this morning. What rules are built into the IIJA that direct funds towards safety outcomes beyond just the safe streets and um, and roads for all program? Like what else is there? Thank you. And, and I can appreciate some of the, the comments that have been shared and, and definitely um, think it's really, this is a great conversation to be having. So I appreciate all of this. There, there's a tremendous amount of funding. There was over 13 billion uh, included of additional safety funding in the bipartisan infrastructure law. We've already mentioned uh, the uh, 6 billion approved, but 5 billion appropriated for safe streets and roads for all. That of course is sort of the flagship of programming uh, funds that we have uh, specifically um, for safety and supporting the National Railway Safety uh, Strategy, the goal of zero. This is building out comprehensive safety action plans and implementing them with a coverage at this point of the first round of funding of over 50% of the population. So really, and, and I think an important thing to note about that program is that it is uh, directing funds directly to the local level. Uh, and this is a new way for you know the Department of Transportation to recognize the importance of working at, at all levels. We've been talking a little bit about what's happening at the state level. And I love the way that this is set up uh, this panel. So kudos to the team for this conversation in this way, because 
all of us have a part to play. Um, you know, the, the call to action is really a critical component of the National Railway Safety Strategy. Uh, we did hold a workshop yesterday celebrating some of the specific commitments to action that we have received uh, from all kinds of stakeholders, including cities. Uh, we had the city of Houston speaking yesterday on their commitment to Vision Zero and the importance of leadership at that level. They are getting federal funds. They also, of course, have other ways that they're pulling funding in. Um, you know, I think at the department, we're really thinking about this idea, and, and I think it was touched upon with some of uh, Ms. Osborne's comments around how every project can and should be a safety project, and it shouldn't be in addition to, it should be core to. Uh, and so, you know, yes, there is, there's $13 billion in funding. We're looking at those additional funds in the, in the HSIP program. Uh, we're looking at uh, more funding for improved data collection, $4 billion for improved data collection. And this is really critical as well. We've been doing a lot of work at the department to map. We, we produced a, a story map with data visualizations to really pull out and understand not only for ourselves and for the data analysts out there and the and the planners who have degrees, but really to, to be able to engage with stakeholders at all levels uh, so that folks can have better conversations when these decisions are being made about how we're going to redesign, rethink uh, our roadways, uh, our public space. Uh, so, and I mean, that's that's a piece of it as well is, uh, you know, a lot of that space is public space. And, you know, uh, you know, an example is New Orleans, where the streets are indeed part of uh, everybody's front yard. Uh, and it is a shared space and a shared commodity, if you will, um, uh, a resource. And so, um, you know, there, there are funds, again, the data collection, there's vehicle safety programs. We had an announcement, uh, you know, this week on some work coming out of FMCSA that will be funding trainings and other things for uh, motor carrier for those CDL uh, holders. Um, we've got a lot of programs happening, but, you know, it's not just a, a throw some money at the problem and, and we're done. And I think that that is part of the, the issue that I have seen in my career, uh, you know, and in, in working in this is there's a lot of hard conversations that, that we need to have. Uh, we need to get out of our, our comfort zones and, and sort of find those those bridges. For example, in Louisiana, we had uh, we had the Dr. Ruth Peterson from the Division of, of Nutrition, Obesity uh, and Physical Activity uh, speak yesterday as part of our workshop talking about work they're doing in Louisiana, where public health is partnering with the Department of Transportation in Louisiana to reduce and remove some of those barriers for smaller rural communities to be able to access those state transportation dollars. So these are these are examples of ways that we all can be sort of reconstructing the way we've been doing business. We see the status quo is not working. We're, you know, maybe if we're celebrating a leveling off of fatalities, we're in a tremendous crisis. Uh, and so it's going to take a concerted, uh, you know, a tremendous effort from all stakeholders. And that's what the call to action is about. You know, we had OEMs at the table. There are pieces of this from the safe system approach. Everybody has a part to play, including the driving public. Uh, but I think we've depended on that for too long or blamed them for too long. And so we've really got to rethink how to build those redundancies in, you know, how to recognize that we're all going to make a mistake at some point behind the wheel. And that shouldn't result in a serious injury or death. No, thank you for that. And, you know, we heard um, with each one of you, the number of people that are dying each year 
is is just a stake in the heart. Uh, two to three children die each day in America involved in car crashes. Um, you know, it does require all hands on deck um, with not just the status quo, as you said, but but moving towards new and real solutions. I'm, I'm going to direct the next question to um, Director Tavares. What opportunities does the IIJ offer um, that will support states in moving towards this safe, safe systems approach? Yeah, so at a statewide level, um, this support has been vital for boosting our commitment to the safe systems approach. And, and it's been mentioned, we've, it's been defined uh, by previous speakers on the safe systems approach, but um, it's really a, a new look, if you will, a new approach on how we're addressing safety rather than being from a reactive mode, looking more as a proactive mode. And so last year, Caltrans just released our director's policy on road safety, which has a huge component on our most vulnerable users, those who walk, bike, roll, take transit, and ensuring that we are addressing their safety needs along our roadways, along our, within our communities, and ensuring that, that we're addressing any of those safety concerns that may put them in a vulnerable position. We're prioritizing safety first on all of our planning, our design, our construction and maintenance and operations of our work. And we are eliminating the most serious crashes on, on our system, eliminating race, age, ability, transportation mode-based disparities and road safety outcomes uh, by addressing our historic and current barriers to transportation access and safety. And so we've actually established in Caltrans 27 uh, statewide safe system lead positions. These are single points of contact for coordinating our safe system approach throughout the entire state. And what the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, it's allowed us to fund some of these positions, but also it's allowed us to develop a road safety action plan that looks at the entire state. And this plan was developed to achieve really a sharper focus on our policies, our plans, our procedures, our processes, and our guidelines. Again, eliminating the most severe road crash injury outcomes for all road users. And it includes actions that really have the greatest potential to shift the road safety culture that will help get us to our road safety goal quickly and equitably. And, and um, many of our local agencies also have been able to, uh, they've been incorporated into this road safety action plan, but uh, we've also applied with them for 50 projects under the Safe, Safe Streets and Roads program. Um, and so they've been very successful in, in obtaining those grants to help improve safety along some of the community roads, neighborhood roads, and, and local agency roads. You know, you use the word uh, safety culture. And um, and that perspective of a safety culture is really critical. I, I want to ask the mayor, um, what do you think the biggest barrier is to safety improvements, to creating a safety culture? Is it dollars and cents, you know, funding? Is there enough money out there? Or is it about um, the will, the will of um, governments, industry, people, you know, what side of it is is creating that the greatest obstacle to us changing and, and reaching these improvements 
and creating a safety culture. I think that uh, funding is is always helpful. No one can deny that. Um, but we have to uh, cultivate uh, and nurture a, a, a culture of safety. Uh, that safety really does come first. I mean, it's astounding that um, you know, infants, toddlers are actually um, casualties of uh, of, of traffic uh, accidents. Uh, that's simply unacceptable. Um, and until communities, uh, uh, public officials, uh, elected officials, really make this a priority for their communities, uh, you're not going to see the needle move uh, in the right direction. Um, so in, in Hoboken, you know, we we use every means at our disposal. Um, you know, uh, to, to improve uh, safety conditions. And we try to do it in an, in, in an, in an innovative way. Um, oftentimes uh, we receive funding for resurfacing of roads and streets, but we try to actually use that funding, not to simply pave, mill and pave a road, but also to add a curb extension that would lower the crossing time between that, uh, that a, um, a, 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 parent carrying with a stroller across the street or a senior, senior citizen getting to, across the street. Those curb extensions uh, are very important um, in terms of uh, increasing public safety uh, on our streets and roads. Um, so it's important for us to use everything at our disposal. Um, you know, the IAJA is not a cure-all or a silver bullet uh, it, it, to, to solve this problem. It's got to be, it's got to start at the local level. There's got to be a commitment by council members, by members of the public, by community groups, by activist groups, by mayors to say this is one of our city's priorities. Um, and then, you know, from that, uh, you'll see action, uh, you know, cities like, you know, Hoboken, Jersey City, um, cities across the country, making those applications uh, to our state governments, uh, to, to our federal governments, the DOT, um, and asking for those funds and demonstrating that commitment. And I, ho I hope that with that commitment demonstrated, uh, we will receive support from uh, all levels of government. Thank you. Ms. Osborne, you know, we, we focused on some of the, the issues that still exist out there, but, but can you tell us some of the policy changes that have and are occurring as a result of IIJA, something that shows promise um, for, the, for the future safety um, on our roadways? Uh, I can definitely point to some positives. Uh, I cannot attribute them to the IIJA, though. So. Uh, I am excited about the plans being formulated by those that have gotten funding through Safe Streets for All. But most of the innovation I am seeing is being done parallel to or sometimes even in spite of the federal program. Um, one of the, the coolest things that, that's going on that we're involved in is uh, it's just helping folks to innovate and experiment. One of the greatest problems with making big changes to roadway design is a lot of people are quite fearful of what that change might mean to them. And it turns out that an engineering sketch does not provide them with the information that they need to know how that's gonna make them feel or how they're gonna interact with the roadway. So uh, we instituted a program called the Complete Streets Leadership Academy 
funded by the Centers for Disease Control. And this year, we're actually working with four state DOTs, and Caltrans is one of them. Uh, in each state, uh, California, Connecticut, and Tennessee, they're working with three local communities. And in the state of Alaska, they're working with one local community to make a temporary quick build uh, safety intervention along a state highway. Um, most states don't have procedures for that. They they do permanent change. They don't do temporary in interventions unless it is for an emergency occurrence or, or something or an event. Um, and I've really gotten to see true problem solving, creativity and innovation from each of those states uh, to figure out how to do things differently and learn from it and incorporate it into their programs going forward. That really gives me a lot of hope and excitement because to make change, you have to be willing to experiment and try new things. And those states like California that are doing that are going to be the ones that teaches everybody else to do it. I'll also say that what we really need to grapple with is the fact that we are not dealing with uh, the, the fact that in complex environments, whether it's urban, uh, suburban, or rural towns, complex environments being where there are driveways and cross streets and pedestrians and, and parking on the side of the street, that you just can't have high-speed travel and make it safe. You can't. It is anathema. When even a computer, if you watch on YouTube, the AV testing, it is those complexities that throw the computer. You need to be going slow enough to capture all that's going on around you and respond to it. If you want speed, you can't have any of that complexity. We knew that when we built the interstate system. We divided the interstates off from the rest of the community. There's no development. There's no cross streets. All on-ramps and off-ramps are, are uh, brought in slowly for merging. There's a separation between oncoming traffic. We knew it would be crazy to allow 55 mile per hour speeds on our surface roads. And then sometime between the 1950s and today, we forgot that. And once we grapple with that, that where there's development, there will not be speed. And where you want speed, there will not be development. It will be separated. We will have much better results. So, you know, we we almost blink and we're at another point of uh, looking at the next set of funding. So, you know, if they if they make you in charge of the world for a day, um, where should the federal government um, be be centering safety improvements in the next funding? Is that for me? That's for you. I get to be queen for the day. Get to be um, yes, yes. I mean, frankly. Uh, all of these safety provisions would apply to every dime and there would be severe penalties for backsliding on safety and big rewards for making advancement. There needs to be accountability in the program. There would also be a much tighter uh, matching of investments to where you're seeing the safety problem. So right now there can be a list of safety problems, but your investments don't need to match that. Uh, I, I would like to see uh, a much tighter analysis between where the interventions will meet the problems and have the feds have the approval to not allow federal dollars to go where those are not being matched. So I think those are the two biggest things. But the third is I would like to see the, uh, the Green Book design manual make it easy to build safe, slow streets not require a million ex exceptions and slow down the process. 
I'd like to see the NUTCD actually uh, design and make it relatively easy to design roads and build, uh, you know, red bus lanes and green bike lanes and colorful crossings and things that tell the driver where to look rather than view that as a distraction for those who the goal is to go fast. And finally, I would like to see a a huge emphasis, the chief emphasis on the role that the, the built environment, both land use and transportation play in confusing the driver. Our auto-centric system is unbelievably driver hostile. We set the driver up to fail and then blame them. We prosecute them. We enforce. Right now, it the drivers are set up for confusion. I would like to simplify everything and, and hold our, our departments at least as much uh, at fault or responsible as the people using the system that they provided for them. It's a good point. I think uh, that's a powerful answer. We're probably almost at time, but I, I we have one more question we can allow, and I'm going to ask um, Ms. Schweninger, um, turn it back to USDOT. How are they ensuring that the, the dollars, the significant amount of funding will go to the communities that need it most? That's a great question, and it's something that has been part of the conversation throughout my time at the department. Um, you know, we do have the J40 initiative. There are, um, you know, some uh, clear directions on how we can direct funds to the most disadvantaged communities. I will say, um, and and that that is there. There's a lot to that program, and and defining disadvantage, and there's transportation disadvantage, and there's different elements to understand uh, within that. We have the Thriving Communities Program, which is also set up to support underserved communities and being able to access federal programs. Uh, this is really in providing technical assistance to communities that can apply to this program, be a part of this program, and receive the kind of guidance and resources that many underserved communities would need for, for various reasons. Additionally, I, I do want to say that you know, with the programs that we have at hand, we are using uh, a data-driven approach and really thinking clearly uh, and focusing on equitable outcomes, equity being a principal uh, priority of the department and the administration. So we are looking at where our worst problems are and we're looking at where communities uh, are, have been overburdened uh, and have been lacking resources, under-resourced, and we are looking at directing funds in that for those communities, understanding uh, the opportunity that we have. And again, Administrator Hutchinson mentioned it in her remarks around making sure that we don't pass this opportunity and not see the, the benefits impacting, particularly places that are disadvantaged and overburdened. We know if we look at the data uh, and I'm I'm a public health professional. Uh, I'm always focused on targeting our resources to the most vulnerable. If you want to improve the numbers, then you look at where the worst problems are and you go there first and you go there quickly. And so we are discussing that. We are looking at that. We are actively uh, making decisions on that uh, at the department with our programs, uh, Safe Streets and Roads for All being one uh, that I'm very closely involved with that. And I can say for sure that that is a 
deep priority and focus of the department. Uh, understanding also some of the constraints uh, that we have. And again, uh, I just want to emphasize the importance of all of the players uh, as we build a stronger safety culture, uh, a better system for everyone. Uh, we all have a part to play. USDOT has an outsized role, of course, um, but we know that it's not, uh, you know, the resources, financial resources, this bill is not the end all, uh, you know, given what we can see based on what's happening in other countries, you know, the, the dollars are not necessarily the answer alone. It's tremendous that we have this opportunity to make this investment, but we have to do it wisely. We have to do it together. It has to be data driven. It has to be mission driven. And that's why it's so important that we've had the leadership that we've had with the secretary saying zero is our goal uh, and understanding that we can't do that alone. Thank you very much. And thank you to all the, the panelists. I think we have all agreed this is a once in a generation um, opportunity to address road safety, um, to not ignore the unintended consequences. And for all of us, no matter what position or space we're in, that we do have a responsibility, um, an opportunity, a role to play in getting towards Vision Zero. So um, thank you all again, and I will turn it back over to, um, to Director Karen Philbert. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Salika. You did an outstanding job moderating this panel. It was such an enriched discussion, and I learned so much. So I wanna thank each and every one of our panelists for sharing their time and their wisdom. A big round of applause, though nobody can hear me except for me, for Ravinder Bala, Mayor of Hoboken, Beth Osborne, VP of Smart Growth America, Emily Schwinninger, Transportation Health and Safety at the U.S. Department of Transportation. I did my best there, Emily. I hope I wasn't too bad with your last name. And finally, Tony Tavares, Director of Caltrans and an active member of the MTI Board of Trustees. You all really made this event possible. Thanks also to our keynote speaker, Jennifer Homendy, Chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. And of course, our gratitude to Robin Hutchinson, Administrator of the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration for starting us off just right with that fireside chat. Lots of thanks here. So thanks as well to Paula Hammond for moderating our keynote discussion. It was really great to have your perspective added in through the commentary. And finally, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the leadership for organizing this event, which came from our own Dr. Asha Weinstein-Ograll, as well as Sarah Puro, Senior Policy Advisor at the Transport National Transportation Safety Board. We also want to thank you all for joining us and remind you to visit commonwealthclub.org if you would like to become a member and to learn more about the club's upcoming events and programs. Today's program has been sponsored by the Mineta Transportation Institute and delivered in partnership with the Commonwealth Club of California. If you'd like to revisit any part of today's discussion, head on over to the Commonwealth Club YouTube channel to find it. You'll be able to download it there, and it will also be featured on the MTI website. I'm Karen Philbrick, and with that, today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.